Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, everyone. It's November. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Tonight, we're watching Sam Irvin's Elvira's Haunted Hills from 2001, starring Cassandra Peterson, Richard O'Brien, and Mary Jo Smith. And we'll be following that with James Signorelli's Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, from 1988, starring Cassandra Peterson, Edie McClurg, and William Morgan Shepard. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. <sighs> so what are you thankful for this year, Axis? Um, let's see. Uh, I got some good snacks. I'm thankful for that. Um, uh-huh. That was that was nice. Uh-huh. Um, I like my bed. That's that's cool. My my dog's yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little things, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that Cassandra Peterson is finally able to, uh, after 19 years, yes. to finally reveal that she's been able to have a, a relationship and bring it out into the open. And yeah, I'm very thankful that you know we've learned one more thing about the Mistress of the Macabre. Hell yeah, so. yeah. So this was a lovely piece of news that came out in her autobiography that she's been with her uh, former and I, maybe still, I don't know if they still maintain the professional side of things, but uh, personal trainer and the two of them have had a long and happy relationship together. Very cute. The two of them seem so sweet together and uh, my gay little heart is warmed. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very happy. For I you. know. We're very happy for I them. I know. It's so sweet. And also a treat then with with that in the news to dip into the Elvira movies, which I, again, because I am a baby and was not really cognizant or alive, depending on the movie, when they were coming right. out, it was I've never seen them before. I was born when she debuted. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. I also was just like, I remember being nine years old and seeing her for the first time in like a cardboard cutout and they're like wow she's pretty <laughs> i mean who doesn't have that reaction the thing like i'm gonna get into this but like i watched this whole video that was basically talking about how elvira was designed by gay men for straight men and then women yeah. love all of it too like Elvira is for everyone. It's like straight men are like, mm-hmm, yes. bazonga. Gay men are like, that's a drag queen. And she is. And we'll get into that. Yes. Women are like, do I want her? Do I want to be her? She looks great. She laughs and she stabs people. Like, it's all, it's all fantastic. Right. Most people don't realize it's like Deadpool. It's D, all of the above. <laughs> In this case, triple D, exactly. all of the above. But yes. Exactly. She's brilliant. She's hilarious. She's hot. She's an icon she's stacked yeah i know yeah Ah. stroke of genius from cassandra peterson truly and we'll get into it but cassandra peterson is amazing but these movies are fun that's like what i really appreciate it's just like are they campy yeah are they corny yeah Yeah. are they a hell of a lot of fun also yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i actually you know in elvira's haunted hills i thought that that was probably one of the times where i went man i really liked mistress of the dark better but this is still pretty good and yeah and um i just couldn't believe that all the budget got blown on one cgi effect that looked like something out of roger <laughs> rabbit and i was just kind of sitting there going I really i know is that really that it's necessary? so funny because like okay right up top honestly like i love elvira's haunted hills and that's almost more my vibe like of the two that might be my favorite but um yeah 
I like I totally agree. And we talked about in the in the watch long um how small the budget was. The whole thing was under a million dollars and it was almost entirely funded by Cassandra Peterson herself after trying to secure funding from other places. It didn't appear so she was like, Fuck it, we'll do it my way. Um, which is why they were recording in Romania and stuff. But yes, with the visual effects. It's a bummer that there's so little information about the production of this one. There's a lot mm-hmm. to find about Elvira Mistress of the Dark, but And we look. Yeah, yeah. Trust me. Yeah, Elvira's Haunted Hills. It's like you get a blip on Wikipedia, like some fun fact kind of stuff, but very little like factual information. And But talking about the budget, one of the only things I could really find um, was that since the budget was so small and it all went into the actual production of the film, they had almost nothing left for publicity for the movie. So in lieu of doing like a big marketing rush for it, the biggest part of their pre-release publicity was a series of screening at AIDS charity fundraisers across the country um, before it released in honor of her friend and collaborator Robert Redding, who died from the disease. And we talked about him in uh, in the watch longs. And oh, trust me, I'll circle back to Robert Redding because I always do because I love him. Uh, <laughs> but it's such a nice, like, nice nod to to her friends and to her history and like where she comes from. But and like I'm glad that that's the fact that survived. I guess I just wish there was more info to find yeah. about it. I mean, I think that one thing that I do appreciate about it that I didn't think about until after we were done watching it or rewatching it was um, it reminded me a lot of the trailer "Don't" from Grindhouse with mm. with that one with our one himbo character uh-huh. where we're basically <laughs> having him being dumped over, and the. The dubbing was actually something that was done in the 70s a lot. Yes. Where we would dub people over because, right, we would dub, we would even dub English accents uh-huh. over with American accents. And I thought it was like they were taking something else that was a shitty habit and they were just transforming it into something magnificent, I know. which is something that she does. Yes. Like if you give her shit, she will literally, she's an alchemist. Yeah. She's an Polish alchemist. that if shit you give up. Her crap, yeah. She'll turn it into something <laughs> turn better. Turn it into gold. And I think that that. It speaks a lot to the character over time. Yes. And, I, and I will give it to that later, Yeah, she's too, so yeah. resourceful in the way that she produces and the way that she's created her own characters. Like, it's a scrappy way of putting stuff together that ends up being wonderful because it's pulled from so many places. And I think it also speaks to how referential she is, both referential and reverential of, you know, earlier media, like, with all of the horror stuff. But Absolutely. as soon as the dubbing started, I'm like, oh, so this is a spaghetti western. <laughs> This yeah. is an Elvira spaghetti western, <laughs> which like man, it, people have like whispered about a third Elvira movie for ages. I would like to see the fully realized Elvira spaghetti western. That I think would be magnificent. <laughs> Give me cowboy yeah. Elvira. The thing that I really like about the other thing that I really liked about the film was the fact that you know Richard O'Brien was in it, mm-hmm. and I don't know. The character was definitely something different than what I've seen him do in the past. Yeah. It was something where, it, like you said, it was last-minute casting. Yeah. And I think that that definitely was the only reason we didn't get a singing part. No. But that was also something where... And for those of you who don't know, Richard O'Brien is the author of The Rocky Horror Show, which became The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, and also, welcome to the horror community. Because <laughs> obviously you knew that. Um, but yeah... Um, so Richard O'Brien was in it, but he was—he definitely played a very interesting character. Yeah. Often, again, rewatching that, I'm like, man, I wonder if Tim Burton lifted the glasses and gave those to Johnny Depp for like for for Dark Shadows. Because I went back and looked, I was like, wow, those really are similar. 
So. Yeah, and I mean, the Tim Burton connection is almost there. Like, I wrote a whole little misconnection mm-hmm. section in my notes for uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and that's one where she had totally tapped Tim Burton to be the director for that, but he was too busy making yeah. Beetlejuice to direct Elvira, which, like, shame! <laughs> I would have loved to see a Tim Burton-directed Elvira, but also, I mean, Beetlejuice, so... <laughs> I mean, there's always a third film. I, that would be cool. Exactly. Okay. Tim Burton directed and, Elvira Spaghetti Western. Go. And Danny Elfman goes yes. in. Danny Elfman doesn't do the music, but Danny Elfman acts in it. <laughs> and, and it's still Danny Elfman. Like, you know, we get a new weird character out of Danny Elfman. Yes. I love that. Yes, you know? yes, yes, yes. And the whole thing is written. Something even more batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And for those of you who don't think that fucking Danny Elfman could get crazy, YouTube Danny Elfman live, uh, you know, for Oingo Boingo, uh, singing Dead Man's Party. The shit is amazing. One hundred percent. Also, a whole thing written by Richard O'Brien. That'll be the. the, the yes. <laughs> that'll be the deal. <laughs> Perfect. Would be very. Cassandra cool. Peterson, feel free to reach out. We've got ideas. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was so much fun. Yeah, I, I just like I think I thought Haunted Hills was such a treat, and I know that's the one that critically got much more panned, <laughs> much more panned. Mm. Suffered from like sequel syndrome, even though it's not a sequel. Mm. And uh, I mean, chronologically yeah. comes first, which is part of why we watched it first. But <laughs> it's such a cute movie that I think, I think really speaks to kind of the form and. Uh, and Cassandra Peterson's roots, which I just think is sweet. It's fun. It's a cast that loves what they're doing and loves working with each other, which is really nice. Right. And I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I think that the other thing that I kind of really liked about it was the, um, I loved all the different post stories that were referenced mm-hmm. in it, which is definitely something different, you know, from, from Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. You know, she yeah. did try and do... You know, and it was it, the movie was dedicated to Vincent Price, who was a friend of hers. Elvira was friends with a lot of people. Yes, you know, um, <laughs> right. She started in the business. She technically started training for the business when she was fourteen. Worryingly uh, so, which is where she lived. <laughs> hmm? She was worryingly topless at the time, occasionally, but yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, well, she was enthusiastic about the job. Let's put it that yeah. way. I mean, kind of like Sasha Gray really wanted the job, you know, and she flew all the way to Italy when she was 16. So, you know, yeah, um, you know, not really agreeing with it. Not exactly like not exactly a parental sanctioning moment, but uh, definitely something where you go, well, they knew what they wanted to do yes. and they went for it. Yes. You know? I, I appreciate her tenacity. You know? I wouldn't have been opposed to it coming a few years later, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I know a judgment. It's right. fine, the, kind of. She she actually said on the uh, on the Arsenio Hall show that she was able to to twirl her tassels uh, from a very young age, but she started trying to learning to twirl like that. When yes, she was yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have that. Like, yeah, because when she was fourteen, a go-go dancer at the club she was working at taught her how to do the tassel twirl but because she was a minor she wasn't allowed to do it in pasties thank you for that whoever made that rule <laughs> thank you pasties. and so that is why she talked her mother who was a costumer into creating the tasseled bra for her out of a bikini top and so that's the skill set like that she used then in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. She hadn't done it for years, but uh, when they were filming the Las Vegas scene, she was like, hold on, there's this thing I can do? <laughs> and pulled out right. a tasseled bra and was like, hey, it's like riding a bike. <laughs> 
Yeah, she has a lot of. I mean, a lot of her mm. background is actually so human. Yeah, right? like she, um, she apparently suffered burns, yeah. third degree burns, as a young child, and that's kind of where the the you know the pastier uh, look comes from. It's because she she had a lot of skin grafts, and um, she also. Yeah, she she wore a lot of makeup to cover yeah. up the fact that she she had been burned. Yeah, I mean, I and so I can was... go into backstory a little bit because I have some notes on that too. Sure. And Please I'm do. getting most of this info from a wonderful video by Matt Baum called uh, "How Elvira Busted Through Hollywood to Become the Queen of Halloween," which he released on Halloween this year. Everyone should watch it because it's lovely and far more complete and also full of great gay history, um, which I don't have time to include all of today. But um, (laughs) is fun, is great. Go watch his video. But uh, yeah, so Cassandra Peterson grew up feeling different in part because of those burns that you mentioned. That was an easy, like, immediate thing as a child to be like, oh, I I basically got disfigured. And (laughs) suddenly I don't feel like I fit in with the other kids. Um, She latched onto horror pretty early. um, And her mother ran a costume shop, so she would show up to school in costumes all the time, which did not increase her popularity, but sounds like a great time. And um, after, so she spent all this time watching horror movies, you know, staying up late, watching them on TV. But it was actually seeing Viva Las Vegas that made her decide she wanted to be a showgirl, which she quickly realized, uh, starting at clubs around her and then becoming the youngest showgirl in Las Vegas history, directly leading into the tassel (laughs) story that we just talked about. (laughs) Um, Yeah, again, youngest showgirl. So she was already blazing trails from a very young age. Let's just get that right Uh off there Yeah, trailblazer start to finish, just every step of the way. Um, And a large part of her early performance persona came from drag queens because, you know, she started performing at bars, uh, then shifted around, tried some different bars, and suddenly saw drag queens performing. She was absolutely entranced. She started modeling her performances after theirs until she was ultimately performing alongside them, getting the tips and tricks from them, bonding with them. Um, And she said to Matt Baum when he interviewed her, They taught me so many things. I was a completely different person when they were done. I was a girl playing a guy playing a girl. Which, again, flashes back (laughs) to that thing that we talked about of, like, how Elvira has something for everyone. It's because, like, she's performing femininity in many ways as viewed by a man, but as a man performing a woman. Like, it's just such a layered, nuanced performance and the way that drag captures that... I think is amazing and adds so much depth. Which explains a lot of the characters camping. Yes. The thing is, she's like, you know, I, you know, the thing is, it, she's pretending to be a bimbo. It's uh-huh. an act. It's a persona. She's brilliant. And she's like, I'm also strong too, yes. right? But the other thing is, the thing that's really cool about it is that she's also a dude. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it. Like, if you watch her talk, she actually says, dude. She <laughs> acts like she's really laid back. She, there's a lot of contrast between her and all the other macabre matriarchs mm-hmm. that came before her. She was something complete. She was something of the of. Actually, I would say that she was the next. Not only the next step for like the eighties. She was the next step for the nineties and yes, the two thousands. Yeah, too, because, because there were few. There are still people who are having like Elvira dress up. Co- you know, dress up. I mean, contests, yes, right? they should be. Yeah, I mean, she took the idea of this femme fatale and kept the hotness, but became a more fully realized character because she had like a much more nuanced personality. It wasn't 
like a one note, hey, I'm hot, <laughs> or like, hey, I'm hot and spooky, right. two notes. She was like, also, I'm funny. Oh, also, I'm smart. Also, say. I'm right. also, I'll right. shank you. <laughs> she's clever. Right, right. Yeah, she's, she's quick. Clever. She's clever. She's sharp. She also does. And she doesn't take shit she, from exactly. Anyone. She takes shit from exactly no what I was about to right. say. Yeah. She's Batman. She, I swear to God, no, swear to me. Yes. <laughs> it would yes. totally be her line too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a little bit more about like how she got to that point. So. So, like I said, she became a Vegas showgirl. She was doing the showgirl whole routine. She was doing pretty well. But um, speaking of her having a lot of friends, it was ultimately Elvis who convinced her to leave Las Vegas. She, yeah, you don't belong here. Yeah, exactly. So she was invited by like a friend of a friend of a friend to one of his parties. And he met her. They hit it off. She was like, I'm a showgirl. And he's like, stop (laughs) so elvis pulled her aside and was like i have seen so many showgirls get stuck here burn out you need to get the (laughs) hell out of dodge and figure out what you want to do next and she said that (laughs) there's this other state a few more miles west it's called california (laughs) you should head over there there's right there's another place that you should start there's a place called hollywood you might want to consider yeah and she like she genuinely (laughs) loved being a showgirl so she she's gone on the record saying like if it was anyone else giving her this advice she would not have listened but seeing as it was literally right. elvis she was like yeah okay i guess you're right so <laughs> she handed in her notice at the clubs she left las vegas she toured europe for a bit and then settled into la to start an acting career um which of course as pretty much everybody who has tried to be an actor knows it doesn't start so hot. So, no. yeah, she landed a bunch of small roles, wasn't paying the bills yet. Would, would like to just give a shout out to one of my favorite interviewees, Jim Crutt, who played Helicopter Zombie on Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> Probably one of the nicest men I've ever met in my entire life. Jim Crutt was like, man, at the time, we were just happy if we got food yes! on set. Yes! <laughs> like, oh, my God. By the way, Gart was a Shakespearean actor, walked uh-huh. around with three plays in his fucking guild. You had to know those those lines back and forth yep. from a Shakespearean guild. Three Shakespearean plays. Uh-huh. Like, damn. Yeah. That's who was the fucking helicopter zone. No, this is why. Like, do I love theater yeah. more than pretty much anything else I've ever done? Yes. I was a theater minor yeah. for a reason because I was not ready to commit to a lifestyle of couch surfing. <laughs> I'm not right. saying I'm making bank right now, but uh, I being yeah. a starving artist is a lifestyle. You have to be so committed to that. Um, and oh, yeah. Elvira was for a time. Uh, Cassandra Peterson was, I should say. Um, so she, she hits LA, she's in LA, she lands some small parts, it's not really paying the bills, um, but one of her longest running early roles is in a live show called Mama's Boys, which has a cast consisting of her and six gay men, including Robert Redding. So this is the show that introduced her to her closest lifelong friend and collaborative partner, Robert Redding. Um, like we talked about in the watchlongs, who's a big part of designing her look and collaborating with her on projects for decades after that. And we'll circle back to that because it was also at this point in these in these roles she was doing that she learned how much she loved to be funny and make people laugh. So it's at this point in the story that you can see the writing on the walls for a very hot drag queen inspired comedian becoming Elvira. But we're getting there. 
So this is also the time that she joins the improv group, The Groundlings. It's brand new at the time. She hops on board alongside Paul Rubens, more popularly known as Pee Wee Herman, Edie McClurg, our wonderfully detestable chastity pariah, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz. It's a star-studded cast. And it's these relationships that would fuel much of the rest of her career as she and her friends supported each other, which is how showbiz and literally every other industry should work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not to preach, but man, support your coworkers and your friends, people. Um, Yeah, because it turns out when you succeed, you can offer your friend a role in a movie. And when your friend succeeds, then they offer you a role in their movie. You see how this works? Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, it works out well uh, if you're actually not a dick about it. So basically, as she keeps trying for role after role as a struggling actress, Cassandra Peterson is creeping up on a deadline that she had imposed for herself, which is her 30th birthday. She promised herself that if she hadn't made it as an actor by 30, which feels young but okay, she would give up on acting and settle for a career that was more sustainable and actually paid the bills, which I get. Um, And it was just before her 30th birthday in 1981 that she finally got the break she was looking for. So LA TV station KHJ was reviving or trying to revive the Vampira show starring, you guessed it, Vampira, spooky icon from a couple decades earlier who earned notoriety as a another spooky late night horror hostess on the original Vampira show in the 1950s. Yeah, so the producers decided that they wanted to cast a daughter in the revival of the show, a daughter for Vampira. They auditioned hundreds of actresses to no avail, not finding anyone who they thought fit the bill. Cassandra Peterson was actually on her honeymoon with Mark Pearson when she got a call from her friend Donna telling her that there was a part made for her, and she wasn't wrong. So Donna begged her to cut the honeymoon short and come back early, and Cassandra said, um, absolutely fucking not, or something to that effect. (laughs) She was burned out, she was ready to quit acting, and this sounded like another dead end to her. But eventually, she gets back from her honeymoon, and KHJ had one audition left. So she went. She got to the audition, they hand her the lines, and she looks at them and she's like, oh, these are shit. They're not funny at all. So she pulls on that improv training, makes up her own set of jokes, entirely rewrites the lines, as a queen does, and of course was hired on the spot. And more importantly, after that display, she was given the creative freedom to design her character's personality and look as long as she followed the simple rule that her character had to wear black. And thus, Elvira was born. Robert Redding stepped in, and the two of them collaborated on a costume that screams I was designed by a gay man, with a dress that was skimpy in the right places, but also covering that sign- the, the extensive burn scarring from her childhood accident, a wig right. inspired by the Ronettes, and her signature colorfully contoured makeup, which was pulled from Redding's own Kabuki-inspired makeup from when he played a witch in Hamlet, which he looked fucking, fucking great brilliant. in. <laughs> he did. So... This brings us back around to her love of drag queens, uh, because Cassandra Peterson described the Elvira look and persona, saying, I think of myself as a drag queen. There's no difference, eh, except a couple things. (laughs) Elvira officially got her TV debut on September 26th, 1981, as the first episode aired, um, crediting Cassandra Peterson as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, in Elvira's movie Macabre. So... Nobody was expecting this show to be a success. 
right off the bat, right. Vampire didn't like the direction that Boom. Cassandra's role was moving the project in, so the headliner dropped out of the project. They renamed the project and forged ahead. Then Vampira sued them, claiming that Elvira stole her look. That was dismissed. Vampira versus yeah, Elvira. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was dismissed in court pretty fucking quickly after a judge yeah. ruled that, quote, Vampira didn't own the concept of wearing a black dress and looking spooky, as Matt Baum so eloquently said in his video. <laughs> And so I would like to extend a bit upon that. So Nermi also admitted that she had based her look in part on Morticia Adams from, and before any of you go, the Adams family was, was started in 1964. The show was started in 1964. The comic itself is from the New Yorker from 1938. Morticia Adams is technically the oldest matriarch of the macabre on record in terms of like, oh, I don't know. American commercial history, if we're gonna like nitpick it. <laughs> but so, in case anybody wants to know, there are matriarchs of the macabre. They're not just Vampira and Elvira. There was also Lily Munster, Morticia Adams, and then way further back than that, 1936, there's Countess Mariah Zaleska, who is based upon Carmilla, who was more than likely inspired by the Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Yep. Just a quick hop back. In case anybody wants to talk about looks and what they're based upon, Dracula's daughter is pictured in many posters as being green. Uh, the makeup was probably green because there's another person, very famous, uh, for putting on green makeup <laughs> during, uh, during, yeah, during rehearsal, and that would be Mr. Boris Karloff, who did Frankenstein. And so uh, that also, you know, in terms of like how that influenced pop culture history, that also influenced the look of the Incredible Hulk. That's why you have Green Hulk and Gray Hulk. Um, but as far as like this person stole, you know, my look from me, it's bullshit. It goes, but the concept of these characters, aside from the fact that women wore funeral garb, and that usually when you were at a funeral, you either wore black or you were being buried in it. Mm -hmm. um, or you were wearing black because you were a widow. Or you were wearing black because, as Axis here can testify, you're in the funeral business. Right? Yep. Thank you, Molly Molasses. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, wearing, the idea of wearing a black gown and being a woman is not new. Yeah. The thing that Elvira and Vampira and Lily Munster and Countess Zaleska did was they towed the line by deciding whether or not they're actually vampires. Elvira doesn't really try to be a vampire. Vampira definitely tried to be a vampire in her more sexualized, you know, um, you know, discourses whenever she would speak. Not saying that I didn't like the sexualization. I was all for female empowerment, but there were definitely big fucking differences between Elvira and Vampira. And the idea that one was stealing from the other is like claiming monopoly over the color purple. It's absolutely absurd in the extreme. Yeah, you can't own a color of a dress. <laughs> you can't own a color of a dress. You can't own a color. All right. Um, for those who are interested, you know, I do recommend going back and looking up Countess Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bathory, who was infamous for her and her servants hunting and killing hundreds of women mm -hmm. in the early 1600s. 
you know, forever young. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she died under house arrest in Exed for you. For those of you who uh, are interested in history or who, you know, love video games. Exed is a series of uh, castles on a lake interconnected by bridges. Every Castlevania fan will instantly have a boner when they look back at the at the wood carvings that, that depict it. Because obviously nothing is original and even that, you know, comes from somewhere. So lots of lots of goth inspiration and so the character has come a long way. I would like to note that, you know, there is kind of a difference between Morticia Vampira and Elvira. Mm-hmm. Morticia wore a hobble dress, a style from the early 1900s that was designed to impair a woman's ability to stride. You know? So why bind their feet when you can just have their their stride impaired? Yep. It was really, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very sexist design choice. Um, you know, if you if you look at Vampira, it's also the same idea. You had a slinky nightdress where, you know, the most you could do was glide in it. Angelica Houston ceremoniously burned her corset and dress <laughs> upon the conclusion of Adam's family. Amazing. Uh, because, you know, you couldn't fucking breathe and you couldn't, fu- you couldn't fucking do anything else except mm-hmm. glide in the goddamn mm-hmm. dress. You know, you were lucky if they put roller skates on you. could floor, You know, maybe by... by momentum you can fucking push yourself across yeah the floor. i find it so amazing so, that contemporary costume designers got corsetry so wrong like historically you mm-hmm. could breathe in a corset yep. that's they yes that's how they're support garments that's what they're supposed to do and yet you have stories like this <laughs> even coming far, further forward like into the 90s when they were recording star trek voyager they put uh jerry ryan uh seven of nine in such a tight fucking mm-hmm. corset under her spandex skin suit that she that's could not breathe and would keep almost passing out on set i'm like you have done corsetry wrong (laughs) right it is never meant to fuck up your breathing or your organs yeah and that's the problem everybody always thinks that right people watch pirates of the caribbean Uh and the quote you know people in singapore must have learned how to not breathe it was was one of the more famous famous quotes from kira knightley right Mm -hmm. so yeah absolutely though support wear yeah. not impairment fucking wear uh-huh. but yeah i digress yeah by so, yes yeah, so, everything that elvira one one last thing look no. up cora harrington if you want to learn more about the history of lingerie yeah. she's brilliant she's we'll so drop smart a link. like yeah read up on it if yep. you care to yup no actually i think it's it's like if you're interested in elvira if you're interested in writing about characters like this if you're interested in playing a role like this, maybe on YouTube one day, maybe look into the character design themselves and try to understand what everybody got right and what everybody got wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, con- in comparison, Elvira wears a polyester slip dress with the front cut open. You know? Yep. Um, she said, <laughs> she joked and said, sure, wears the same dress except she wears it backwards. <laughs> but, you know, but Elvira oh, is basically icons. Jessica Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Elvira is basically just like a rabbit. She's sexy, mm-hmm. she's goth, and she's not taking shit from anyone. She's a bit different than the others. She's She took the next steps. She has, you know, she has different jewelry. She had a different looking couch. She drives a 1959 Ford Thunderbird, which is another thing I'd like to point out. You know, her whole character had, you know, layers and layers and layers of, of different, you know, accoutrement, yep. you know, to sort of show off, you know, who she is the character had more depth yeah and so and that's also uh, you know and you know what the greatest thing about having accessories is kids merchandising <laughs> merchandising 100%. aside from being like the Coors Light model right mm-hmm. and you know being this Coors Light advertising person 
and um, you know doing all the other drives she did and she did a lot more than just one blood drive or you know uh, more than the AIDS drive right. she's done tons of charity work right there's also you know you know model kits you know for the car and all the all the fake jewelry that came with it and the, yeah and the slip dress i mean the like, year after the, her show premiered the elvira costume became the most popular halloween costume ever made so right tom hanks tried with david s pumpkins too bad maybe david s pimpkins will will pick up a bit whatever. yeah and speaking of owning like how we i like we briefly said you can't own a color just as a side tangent if you're not familiar with the fight over vanta black or the world's blackest black i highly recommend yeah. looking up stuart semple who is an artist who's been yeah. working against the ownership of a color and then patented and made freely available the world's pinkest pink fun guy a lot of a lot of co- really interesting stuff to read about about color theory and legal issues so just another another fun tangent for you folks there is actually a white pink that's coming out that is supposed to be able that is so white mm-hmm. that it's supposed to be able to cool down the yes. room and use for air conditioning yeah. yeah i would also like to point out that john updike had daryl van horn designing the same fucking paint in the witches of eastwick novel just want to point that out <laughs> this is like every time you think you've got an idea and you think it's fucking original it's guess fucking what no you haven't nope. probably haven't it's it's not who came up with the idea first it's who got to the patent office right. first and copyrighted the shit right. and, and sometimes it. it's simply who did it better patent and a copyright like it's un- the unfortunate right. truth is like if you had the idea 20 years ago and didn't really do anything with it, it's not really someone else's fault when they come up with it and do a great job. It's a tricky world. Yeah. It's a tricky world. And intellectual... <laughs> Vampire. Yes. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So circling way, way back to Cassandra Peterson and the yeah. TV show. So... Like I was saying, um, nobody was expecting Elvira's movie Macabre to be a success. So after the vampire lawsuit, um, the station itself nearly pulled the plug on the show when they saw how risque Elvira's dress was. A head honcho at the station showed up on set, told her to cover up. She earnestly promised she would and then did not a fucking thing about it. And I love that for her. She was like, yeah, 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 of course, I totally hear you. Then just went back out on set titties out and proceeded as planned and nobody stopped her um and sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness no, than that's permission necessary. yeah exactly yeah. and clearly it no, worked out necessary. now the they were so non-committal about the show working that the studio even rented elvira's signature couch rather than commit to buying it but they ended up renting it for seven years before somebody was like hey did you remember that we're still renting this thing and bought the couch. <laughs> the couch is now in a in a museum, I believe. Somewhere Good. In, in Hollywood. As it should be. I have be. to look it up, but yeah. yeah. And it's actually the couch is in the Good. museum. Yeah, and for in sure. the end at the end of the day, egg on all of their faces because people loved Elvira. Within weeks of the yeah. show premiering, she was being invited on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and the vamp we know and love became a star. And this is years of training as a showgirl, an actress, a comedian. They all culminated in this role literally designed for her because she got to design it herself, which is a fucking dream. And again, I'm like I'm stopping there because just I wanted to talk about the history that brought her to becoming Elvira. 
Lyra, but there is so much more of her story. Check out her autobiography that re she released. And again, check out Matt Baum's video because he covers way more than I did. And he's a really intelligent guy. So definitely look at that. Um, but we love Elvira. We know Elvira. And um, should we talk about Elvira, Mistress of the Dark? Because there's so much to say about that one. Sure. I mean, where do you want to... I mean, for me, I... Okay, so in terms of things I loved about the movie, I can only say as a kid, it was just like, I hadn't watched it in a very long time. I can say that rewatching it, I rewatched it mm -hmm. twice, obviously, because, you know, before we do a show, I always watch yeah. it one more time before we, you know, before we do our commentary. Mm -hmm. I remember the, the, the pot, um, the casserole scene, yes. which I think was, <laughs> and, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the creation of the casserole scene. I remember sitting there going, wow, that's, you know, that was really a surprise as a kid when mm -hmm. the first time that thing came popping out of the bowl. And I'm, and I kept sitting there and I was like, oh, that scene's coming. Man, I hope that scene doesn't suck. And I was like, no, that scene still t stands the <laughs> test of time. Practical effects in that uh -huh. case were perfect. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I, like, that was like... It, this one really, it feels like a product of the 80s, but like in a good way. It yeah. has all the camp of yeah. a good 80s project. And, you know, it's, of course, like it was great. It was campy. It was ridiculous in the way that Elvira is. But just like the TV show in terms of how people had no confidence and there was self-sabotaging along the way, man, this movie had marketing disasters, which absolutely dashed all hopes of a profitable release, which sucks. Yeah. Because the movie was produced mm -hmm. by NBC, but they set up a distribution deal with New World Pictures, and New World filed for bankruptcy right before the movie was supposed to hit theaters, meaning that they cut off the marketing campaign, and the theatrical release was cut down from thousands of theaters to way under 1,000. And critics were tough on the campy masterpiece, and with the marketing gone, it logically became a box office bomb. But thankfully, as cult hype built, it became a bestseller when it was released on video, and one of NBC's highest rated programs of the year when it finally aired on TV in 1990. Um, oh, and that video release came in February of 1989. The promotional tagline on the posters was, uh, what a pair! Elvira and Valentine's Day! And the suggested retail price was $89.95, and I really had to sit down with my parents and be like, I'm sorry, were VHS tapes really that expensive? Because I had no yeah. idea! <laughs> so Siskel and Ebert trashed it. It's one of the few times I'll say Siskel and Ebert aren't always right. <laughs> yeah. They... Yeah, people did not appreciate it as it was meant to be appreciated. <laughs> right. I definitely feel that, like, in hindsight, as far as 80s movies went, it stands the test of time. I could think of a lot of 80s movies where I'd rather piss glass than watch them again. Certainly. Um, it's not my favorite yeah. era, for the most part. <laughs> Certainly for uh, cultural no. moments, but... Yeah, yeah no. the, the, was... the problem with, like, yeah. campy media so frequently is I feel like it's something where you need to be in on the joke in order to get it. And some people go in just not knowing that they're walking into a joke and they just think it's bad. And, like, that's such a missed opportunity to enjoy fun stuff. It makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, when I think about films that have a similar kind of campiness to them, you know, I think of Ernest Scared Stupid or... You know, the Monster Squad. Yeah, I mean, even the reception to something like Rocky Horror, Richard O'Brien again. Like... These aren't 
Well, the rock. Oh. It's a different thing. But that thing is an animal. That's a yeah. That's yeah, an animal. Nothing is a direct comparison. Same... But when you're talking about campy masterpieces right. that terms... were panned initially. <laughs> right. Like you know, it it wasn't really meant to be. It wasn't meant to be a bloody horror. No. But it still it still gets close enough to having those those scary effects. I mean, I do agree with Ebert with the with the concept. Well, I do agree with the critics and the idea that it would be more appropriate for children if it hadn't been for Elvira herself yeah. and all the sex jokes and everything. Sure, I didn't think but it was supposed to be that, appropriate like, for think... children. <laughs> right. I think it was just, uh, I think it was a film. I mm-hmm. think the film worked as it was. I definitely don't think it was trying to reach any new milestones. I think it was just trying to, you know, be a good time and I think yeah. it accomplished that. And I feel I like mean, that's, there's a lot of 80s films that's such a trap oh, for so much like cinema and TV and so many medias where it's just studios being like oh actually what if we made this for kids like in the production there originally were not going to be all those teenagers in it but they were like let's add a whole gaggle of teens to make this more palatable for you know teen audiences which I, I just think so many things and this happens in books too with a lot of books getting shunted into YA unnecessarily into young adult fiction like just it's a marketing move entirely and not I have to have that conversation let me just say as a writer and as a workshop leader Mm -hmm. I have to have that fucking conversation all the fucking time and I hate that conversation yeah which is having to explain that young adult horror is not exactly horror for adults. Mm-hmm. And then you get accused of being a gatekeeper. And it's like, well, no, actually, I am a gatekeeper because <laughs> I was an assistant editor. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you're right. I am a gatekeeper. And I'm telling you, young adult horror is not exactly the same as regular horror. And end of story. Yeah. But the reason why people move, let me tell everybody the reason why everybody goes for young adult horror or middle grade horror. The reason why is money. Yeah. People want money. And you see, people don't really buy books for adults anymore because they're too busy reading things like Fifty Shades of Grey and Harry Potter on the beach still. And I should know. I walk around the beach and I stare at what everybody reads. Mm-hmm. Not, be- not to judge, just as a research, you know, just research purposes. But yeah, like if you want to know why it's like a young adult thing, they're always trying to get horror back into young adult because, well, that's the that's the only place where they can make money where people are still kind of like forced to buy books yeah. for kids. That's the only reason why it works right now. Eventually yeah, I mean, that will dry up too. Yeah, young adult is like the most profitable thing. Like as somebody who works at least tangentially in marketing, like it's not like I don't understand the push from a marketing perspective, but it definitely has quashed a lot of creativity to shoehorn stuff that didn't need to be YA into yeah. YA. I also think it insults... The other thing is, on behalf of the kids, I think it's fucking insulting to the young adults. Uh-huh. There's a lot of stuff where I read that's young adult, and it's like, hey, I took out the blood and the boobs, so uh, it's still young adult. It's like, no, dude. The kid's reading this, and the kid's like, what do you think, I'm stupid? Like, you know, of course that's a vampire. Of course this is what's going on. Of course we're getting butchered. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the kid can the kid can infer naturally. Yeah. I think there's a lot of moments where kids read books and they go, what do you take me for? Yeah. And I think that that's, yeah. Yeah, and with... I think it's sad. And looping back to movies, too, I always think it's such a weird thing that, like... So Elvira, very specifically in her career, like, she never wanted to do, like, super gory bloodbath kind of stuff. She leaned more right. towards stuff that could be fun, and I appreciate that. So I don't think she wanted to make, like, a super raunchy or bloody R-rated flick, 
but there's this industry right. pressure, I feel like, as soon as something becomes PG-13, to be like, well, let's earn that 13-year-old right. viewer. And so by not making an R-rated movie, then you're automatically almost forced into trying to make mm. your piece palatable to young audiences. Yeah. When Elvira was clearly designing, a, like, and writing a movie for mm. adults, like, written by adults, for adults, and... It was, I think, largely studio pressure that forced it to become a teen comedy. And I'm not complaining, like, I didn't think the inclusion of teens was terrible or ruined the movie or anything. But it just wasn't the original direction. And then I think that's part of what ends up confusing critics and earning yeah. the movie criticism, that it was kind of outside the control of the creative directors. Which sucks. Mm. My only qualm with the film was that William Morgan Shepard's, you know, role as the, as the, you know, as Vincent Talbot, mm -hmm. it felt a little bit undercut to me. Yeah. I felt like we were spending a lot of, I felt like we were spending a lot more time with Elvira revolutionizes the teens. Yes. Than we were getting into a scary story. I felt like yeah. we could have had a couple of scenes where the teens got mm -hmm. killed and they were being mm -hmm. used for rituals or something. Or I if felt the teens like just weren't there and they could have actually devoted yeah. plot time to developing the villain of the movie that also would have worked just sure. fine yeah i mean i would have blended them yes i would have blended them but i still think that it's just yeah at this point like because whenever i think of this this movie i think of shocktober you know and if any of you grew up in in new york or on the east coast you were probably you know watching wpix in the 90s and the 80s and shocktober was always like you know um it was always mm. 80s horror movies. You were watching, you mm -hmm. know, Jason. You were watching Freddy. You were watching Phantasm. And so, like, that's the thing. Fire Mistress of the Dark really fits into almost any category. Yeah. And that's yeah. just it. Like, when we're, watching, when we're watching Elvira's Haunted Hills, I feel like it really pairs much better with Elvira, mm. Mistress of the Dark than it does with most other features. I think that when we're watching Elvira, mm. Mistress of the Dark, that it pairs with almost any <laughs> 80s film. And this it is does true. It, and it smacks still. Like the Burbs with Tom Hanks, it still works with that. It still works with um with the Blob from 1988. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of you know also same year, same year, yeah. same same sort of tone. It's really great stuff. I don't get why on earth we would you know why anybody would you know harshly rate the film. But no, it's delightfully yeah. fun. Yeah, and circling back again for a second, you were talking about the role of Uncle Vinny. And I have to wonder, too, because the role was originally written appropriately for Vincent Price as, you know, yeah. unsurprising. He passed on the part because he considered the movie too racy and, like, fine, sure. <laughs> Bummer, but cool. But I do have to wonder, like, if they had had his name behind it, if they we would have gotten more screen time and more development for Uncle Vinny, without question. yeah, and I that's one hundred percent. I would have loved because to see everybody else would have cashed uh -huh. in on his name. Yes, everybody else would have cashed in on his yeah. name. Yeah, that's exactly what they would have. I done. know, and so it's almost a bummer. Like while I think the actor who got the role did a great job, it was fine. Um, but I wish we had gotten Vincent Price just in order to get the character development for the character. That would have been great. 
Um, but like I said, there's a, a laundry list of misconnections for this movie of people who almost worked on it. Like I mentioned Tim Burton already. We also missed a yeah. Pee Wee Herman cameo um, because Elvira cameoed in Pee Wee's Big Adventure and her friend from the Groundlings, like I said, Paul Rubens, he wanted to return the favor, but he was filming Big Top Pee Wee at the same time. I don't know why everybody needed to make a movie in 1988, but they did, even though Paul Rubin yeah. didn't make it in the film. His collaborator, both in Groundlings Improv with Cassandra Peterson and on Pee Wee's Playhouse, John Paragon, played the incredibly gross gas station assistant and served as co-writer with Peterson and Sam Egan. And then, of course, almost Vincent Price showing up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we, of course, we talked about in the in the watch along that Brad Pitt was in the in the running. Like he was one of the final two to be that that main teen boy, but was too hot. Even as a teenager, they thought he would distract from Bob, which fair enough. Fair enough. Like and of course, our beloved himbo Bob was written and I quote, to be the male equivalent of a blonde bimbo, which obviously worked. And sweet Daniel Green got the role partly because he was genuinely shocked and blushing after one of Cassandra Peterson's spicy jokes, which I just think is the like sweetest fact. Um, and again, speaking of Bob, somehow entirely flew over my head until I was researching after the watchalongs that his character's name is Bob Redding, named exactly after Robert Redding who yeah yep yep things I miss sometimes <laughs> in the words of Deadpool that's just lazy writing <laughs> lazy but sweet writing sometimes lazy writing is defensible and okay <laughs> yeah other fun appearances the Allstate insurance representative in the movie is played by Cassandra Peterson's dad Dale Peterson a real life Allstate insurance representative um and I do, of course, have to talk again about, we know, my favorite character in the movie, Gonk. Um, but the actual dog actor for Gonk was a huge fucking problem child. So Binny the Poodle was extremely temperamental and did not like anyone except his trainer, which seems like a poor trait for a movie dog to have. So he barked and growled so much on set that multiple scenes had to be entirely dubbed because the audio was unusable. So if we thought that we were just getting in du dubbing in Haunted Hills, you're wrong. It's plenty of dubbing in this movie. <laughs> And wow. yeah, and Binny actually that I did not know. Binny actually attacked actor Kurt Fuller's ankle. That's the real estate agent. He left him with scars. The attack was so bad that Kurt Fuller has still to this day has real scars <laughs> from Binny the poodle. Um, also, this is this is almost more of a Cassandra Peterson fact than a Binny fact. But Cassandra Peterson didn't want to use any permanent dyes on the dog. Like, very nice. I appreciate trying to be healthy with pets but that means that the team used natural vegetable dyes which had to be touched up oh, every single day so every day Benny the nightmare dog would show up they would have to re-dye his fur and then he would go be a terror on set so undeniably a diva but a show stopping I wonder if role. anybody lost a digit or two <laughs> while they were like dyeing his hair I know Jesus. I know okay actually one of my favorite that, see kids there are horrors there's always horror story materials in horror mm -hmm. movies eh? write it down one of my favorite genres on oh TikTok is following professional dog groomers like and pet groomers and just seeing like it, the 
there are some sweet ones, but there are some creatures who clearly are like, hi, I was meant to be feral. Do not touch me with that brush. And this is how I imagine Binny's grooming sessions go. <laughs> Just like Binny being restrained and trying to like eat off people's fingers while having pink vegetable dye made from beets lovingly applied to his ears. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, Get your damn dirty ape hands off me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly that, but for Benny. Um, and speaking of animals as well, just to touch on the ending, because we, we missed a critical plotline resolution. So in the script, there was an unreleased scene showing the fate of Chastity Pariah and her friends who got turned into pigs. So it, it yes. never got into the, the final movie, but there are some photo stills of this. Um, they were carted off to a bacon producer slaughterhouse, but before they arrived, they woke <laughs> up as humans when the spell woke off, were off um, half naked and surrounded by pigs in the back of the trailer, which a shame we missed it. But again, got to have that PG-13 yeah. rating, I assume. <laughs> well, now I feel like we missed out. I know, I know. So much could have happened. Um there was so much good stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, it would have been it would have been much crazier if everybody had actually been naked during the orgy scene. Truly. Or getting naked I mean, honestly, scene. like I still, when Chastity just went fully on that dude's face, I was like, how did this movie retain a semi-family right. friendly rating? <laughs> how on <Yeah>. earth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the way. But yes, this. I this is a movie that I absolutely wish there was an extended cut of. <laughs> it's because the censor at the time was actually convinced that there was such a thing as a pantyhose inspector and thought that the <laughs> old man on the floor was doing a public service. That's that's how they got a yeah, PG thirteen. Yeah, yes. that or you know it's just never money. money or never figured out that that was a way you could deal with a lady. So you know that's always an option for men. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean deal. Yeah, I think. Pleasure, maybe? Pleasuring, I think, is the word we're yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The, again, I think that's part of the foreign concept. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, um, yeah, this, again, yeah, I would love, I wish that this one had more deleted scenes available. Like, I know they were, they were working with what they had, but there are so many fun opportunities. Give me the extended cut, you know? <laughs> yeah i agree yeah the final fun fact i want to mention just because it delights me is that um the spanish dub of this movie if you're ever lucky enough to listen to it it was done by the exact same cast as the uh, spanish dub cast of the golden girls so it is a one-to-one -one recasting of the entire movie with spanish blanche rose and the rest of them <laughs> a fun day for that it's studio amazing so much potential in these stories i swear to god i know i know yeah, elvira when she was on the when she was on the rupaul show she said that she was like yeah you know it's amazing i'm like i'm big in japan and like i, I go around the world now and mm -hmm. i was watching people like speaking those languages like languages i never even had to learn and uh you're just sitting there like she's like yeah i'm speaking spanish and i and i never even learned a day of it and i'm like yeah she's just Oh my gosh. Yeah, delightful. It's it's amazing what the magic of movies can do for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, by the way, power to dub actors. What an interesting career. Like I am fascinated. Like right. I love voice acting period, but the challenge of trying to capture another actor and also make up your make your words in a different language line up with their mouth 
fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we wrap up talking about Cassandra Peterson, given all the incredible AIDS charity work that she did, um, it only seems right to talk about another fantastic AIDS-related foundation. And this one is, of course, run by another incredible celebrity figure known for being well-dressed, particularly flamboyant. I'm talking about the Elton John AIDS Foundation, and this is an incredible group. Um, they do a lot of funding of direct action, community-based AIDS care um, organizations, but they also do a lot of great legal work, making sure to take care of HIV and AIDS activists in the legal system, fight for people's rights, including programs like um, needle exchange programs in the United States and other policies around the world as well. They are a worldwide organization doing fantastic work. So if you are uh, looking to send any charitable dollars anywhere, I'm recording this on Giving Tuesday, not to date this, but it's a great day to uh, do some charitable work that this is a great, great place for you to send a little donation um, and really support the communities that Elton John, that Cassandra Peterson, that we care about a great choice. And as always, there are lots of ways to give back that aren't just financial. So check out in your community, see if there are any HIV or AIDS related care programs, anything that needs volunteers. That's a great place to get involved. Um, and there are a lot of ways that you can help out with just donating time. So go out there and do some good work in honor of Elvira. This was delightful. Thanks for coming along for the Elvira ride and uh, read that autobiography, y'all. We'll definitely put links in the commentary. Um, up next is the horror news with Amanda Headley. And uh, give her a big warm welcome. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in December. See you in December. Bye. Bye. Sentinel Creatives is open for submission to their latest anthology titled Folkloric, Tales of Folklore and Horror. They are looking for dark fantasy and horror stories inspired by history, folklore, cults, religion, myth, and legends with just a touch of cosmic horror. Submissions should be between 5,000 and 9,000 words. This isn't a hard limit, but preference will be given to those stories that meet the requirement. Deadline to submit is January 1st, 2022. You can find out more information about the submission guidelines at www.mail chi.mp forward slash 24777ddc881f forward slash folkloric dash tales dash of dash folklore dash horror dash submissions. The first line is actively seeking submissions that are centered around a first line that is provided as the theme. All fiction stories submitted must be written with the provided first line. Story length is to be between 300 and 5,000 words. Spring submissions are due by February 1st, 2022. The spring theme is Raina sat in front of the mirror, removing her makeup and wondered who she would discover underneath. The first line also accepts poetry and non-fiction submissions based off this theme. Visit thefirstline.com forward slash submissions dot for more information on the submission guidelines.
Fedawar Press is open for submissions to their horror slasher anthology, Camp Slasher Lake. This is a tribute to the glorious slasher movies of the 1980s. They want unstoppable killers, the claustrophobic sense of no escape, and of course, the blood. Story length is to be between 7,500 and 15,000 words. Submissions will be accepted until April 30th, 2022. Find out more about the submission guidelines at www.fedowarpress.com forward slash submissions forward slash camp dash slasher dash lake. The Deadlands is a new monthly speculative fiction magazine, and they are looking for short stories, poems, and essays about the other realms, of ends that we face here, and the beginnings that we find elsewhere. Submissions up to 5,000 words will be accepted. For more details on the submission guidelines, visit www.thedeadlands.com forward slash moksha.io forward slash publication forward slash the hyphen deadlands forward slash guidelines clash books is open for submissions for their coming of age with a horror twist anthology nowhere fast they are seeking stories between 3,000 and 5,000 words and the deadline to submit is october 28th 2022 for submission details visit www.clashbooks dot com forward slash clash forward slash two zero two one forward slash one zero forward slash two nine forward slash nowhere fast silver shamrock publishing is seeking original splatter punk western short stories set in the late 1800s old west for their midnight in the stagecoach anthology Story submission should be 2,500 to 6,000 words in length, and the submission deadline is April 30th, 2022. Find out more about the submission guidelines at www.silvershamrockpublishing.com backslash Midnight in the Stagecoach Anthology. Please note that even though The Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you are a magazine or press that is interested in having your submission advertised on The Late Night, you can write to moanorlawrence at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moaner T. Lawrence. Find us at moanaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.